0: Oh, Lord Jesus, it is so good to pause and to come into your presence and as less was sharing for us to behold the Lamb. Father, tonight I, I sense that I'm in the presence of a bunch of Marys who have chosen the better part. We've left the Marthas at home, whether it's the Marthas of our personality or or whatever, Father, we, we've set aside the busyness, we've set aside the intensity. Sometimes we've set aside all the work and the labor of the week, just so we could come, Lord, and, and sit at Your feet and listen. With our worship, Lord Jesus, it, it's all we have to bring. It's just ourselves, and so we are here. We don't have the answers. We don't have the wisdom without Your Spirit. We don't have what's required, what's needed. We just bring ourselves. And we come as we are. And as it were, Lord Jesus, we sit down now. We kneel at Your feet and, and we're all ears. I want to hear the truth of Your Word. And I pray that You would speak to us and through us. Would, would You, Lord Jesus, do what You do so well. Speak tenderly but firmly to every one of our hearts. Deal individually and independently and intimately with each one of us. And may we all, to a person, young and old, walk out of here tonight having been touched by your Spirit and taught of your love. We thank you for your Word that is before us. And we are all ears to hear. Would you come and teach us now, Lord? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, everyone. We are in Revelation 14, and we're going to pick up where we left off on Sunday, beginning in verse 6. And I saw another angel... Flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. Now, at the beginning of chapter 14, John got a sneak preview. "...of the coming Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 bondservants of Israel, Jewish bondservants, we can call them God's ground troops, in the tribulation." Well, here comes the air support. The angels are now beginning to fly, beginning to turn out. John witnesses a flight wing carrying out their sorties with precision and accuracy. Angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, quoting Psalm 104, verse 4, tells us of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Further down in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, The pastor writes, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so, an angel appears now in mid-heaven. This is that part of Revelation. Well, actually, it's been going on for a while now. But where God is dealing supernaturally with the earth. And I love it. It's so cool. It's so impressive and and makes you realize what it's going to be like. If you can pause and even fathom what life in the final seven years of this age will be like. It will not be like it is right now. There will be supernatural occurrences happening all around. And everyone will know that it's supernatural. And when people choose, for example, the mark of the beast that we talked about last Sunday. When they choose that, they're going to know... They'll have a sense of what they're doing. They will already have rebelled against, rejected what they know to be the work of God, trying to save, trying to get their attention. Well, here again, he's doing it. An angel flying in the mid-heavens, speaking this gospel out over the whole world so that the whole world can hear. But keep this in mind as we study tonight. That for all the angels of this chapter, much much more of the 66 books that are in the Bible, there's only one revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? One Jesus. As an angel will tell John in Revelation 19, verse 10, I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here comes this angel, and he's simply an angel, a ministering spirit. But he's flying in the midheaven. The midheaven, this is a word in the Greek that indicates the highest point in the visible atmosphere. Okay, this would be the place that the sun occupies at noon. And the reason I tell you that is this is a place that can be seen by all. That everyone can be aware of and see and hear from. And here this angel flies and he preaches, quote, an eternal gospel, verse 6. It's an eternal gospel. And to do it, he has a megaphone. Verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, Megale Phone. Not phony, but phone, as in megaphone. He's speaking loudly. That's where we get that phrase from. And he says, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth "...and the sea and the springs of water." That is, worship the Creator. Worship Him who made all the earth. Three things He says here in this eternal gospel. He says, fear. He says, glorify. He says, worship your Creator God. This message comes just as the beast is demanding that his mark be taken. So people are given a choice. The beast is saying, you must take my mark. Take the mark of the beast. You want to buy, you want to sell in my economy, in my commercial world, then you will take my mark. And at the same time that offer is made, that demand, if you will, is made, this angel appears in the midheaven saying, oh no, no, no. Fear God. Worship Him. Glorify Him. We said on Sunday that everyone's going to know. They will know what it is that they're doing when they take the mark. But that doesn't mean they won't be doing it under duress. That doesn't mean that people won't be fearful as they take the mark. doesn't mean the pressure from Antichrist and his minions won't be intense. Or that many people won't take the mark out of absolute fear. Well, if I don't take the mark, how am I going to survive? I have to do this to survive, right? Or I have to do this or He's going to chop off my head like He has so many of those, those new Christians. They'll know what they're doing, but that doesn't mean they necessarily feel good about it. It's one of the most tragic things in, a, in the world is when someone rejects Jesus out of fear. Fear for the kind of change it might mean in your life fear that if I accept Jesus I condemn someone else which by the way is just absolute foolishness by not accepting Jesus do you think you'll lift condemnation for somebody else that doesn't work in fact perhaps the only hope someone who stands condemned has is for you to accept Jesus so that they, they can hear why you accepted it and, and who he is and they can see the change that he makes in you now, people will be full of fear and anxiety and distress. It will be running at a fever pitch by this time. Judgments raining down, Antichrist rising up to his full satanic potential. And into the midst of all of this cacophony, this megaphone message rings out fear God. Fear God. Fear God. Why? Well, the reality is the more we fear God, the less we fear. Period. The more we fear God, the less we fear. And you can fill in a blank if you'd like to. Is there something in your life that you're fearful of? Fear God. And that fear will go away. I'm afraid of death. Fear God. And that fear will wane. Well, I'm afraid of what people might think of me if I... Fear God. Fear God. I'm afraid of this instance or that instance. I'm afraid of what I don't know. I'm afraid of the future. Fear God and all other fear will vanish. Psalm 19 verse 9 tells us the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. What does that mean? It simply means fear God and it cleans you out. Washes away other fears, other distress. Fear of the Lord cleanses sin The fear of the Lord sanctifies the heart. It's the only fear, by the way, that does that. No other fears have a cleansing effect to them like the fear of God. Charles Spurgeon says, filth brings decay, but cleanness is the great foe of corruption. So here comes this angel, and he's flying in midheaven. And he's calling out this eternal gospel, which should tell us something. Even at this late hour in the tribulation, God is still trying to save. And you need to be aware of that, for what we're going to hear from the next angel is pretty distressing. But we need to be aware of the heart of God. The love of God is not the stuff of the superficiality of the love of man. The love of God, some of us were talking about earlier today, is multifaceted. It is complex. It is profound. It is unfathomable. And yet we still drop our plumb line and want to fathom. We want to understand the love of God. I I hope you will a little more tonight by the time we're done. But it's going to be a rough patch to get there. The love of God. Here in the midst of all of this mess... Why is this angel saying, fear God, give Him glory, worship Him, and be saved? Now you might say, well, I don't see that part. Where does it say, and be saved? Well, it's an eternal gospel. The gospel is the message of salvation. And while the message may seem a little different in the way the angel is presenting it, and I'm sure the angel will be saying things that are not all written down right here, but he's presenting a message, whatever it takes to try to save people, and it begins with the fear of the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is knowledge. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. And this angel is calling out, fear God, if you can can stop fearing this Antichrist, if you can stop fearing the dragon, if you would stop fearing the false prophet, and fear God, salvation is still within reach. It's the eternal gospel. Be saved. And God is still at it. Even at a time when mankind is saying, nope, no thank you. By the way, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come, which is proof positive that the church doesn't finish the job because here's an angel still preaching the gospel. church is gone. Jesus never said that the church will complete this task. He simply said that the gospel will reach the end of the earth before the end comes. That everybody's going to hear. And here we have this angel, and I guarantee you he's traversing the earth in the mid-heavens, getting around to where everybody can hear where he's going, what he's saying. As this offer of salvation still rings out, verse 8, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And that is an interesting statement. Right in the jet stream of the first angel now comes another one with an ironclad proleptic warning. If you've been around here, you may have heard us use the phrase proleptic. Not prophetic, but proleptic, although it is kind of prophetic in the way it's defined. Proleptic means something that is so absolutely certain, it's spoken of as if it's already happened. And here is given the warning, but it is an absolutely certain warning of the fall of Babylon. And we're going to read about that, understand it much more in Revelation 17 and 18. We'll really dig into it when we get to those chapters uh, a few weeks out here. But it's a fall that is warned against both religious Babylon and commercial Babylon. Two aspects of the Babylon power of the dragon through Antichrist at this time. At Jerusalem, Jerusalem is God's chosen city, right? It's so the one He said, i put my name there. That city is mine. That's my capital. I will dwell there. And indeed, Jesus will in the millennial kingdom. Jerusalem is God's city. Babylon is the devil's HQ. Go all the way back; you can read about it. In Genesis eleven: Babylon, founded by Nimrod. I believe we talked about Nimrod earlier in this study several years ago. <laughs> we looked at him; he founder of Babel. And of course, you know, the Tower of Babel was raised up there in Babylon. It's the seat of pagan idolatry for all history. That's where it began. And it still works its way, its evil in the world today. Well, it's going to rise up stronger as the headquarters of the Antichrist, the power center of his brief but brutal reign of terror, Babylon. And again, I'm going to save that. We'll look at it in depth in chapter 17 and 18. But why is it that Babylon falls? This is what I want you to see. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Literally, and if you're a note taker, write this down. Passion of her immorality is literally she's drunk or made the nations drunk on the wine of the anger of her fornication. The anger of her fornication. Sunday, we talked about the hostility of sexual immorality. What do you mean? Well, the Bible's very clear about this. That the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's really hard to be caught up in the midst of sin and want to be where God is worshipped. And want to be in a place where God is praised. And that's the problem with the flesh focus. That's why sexual immorality here brings about anger. Anger of her immorality, her pornea, her sexual immorality. And you could say literally that sexual immorality can easily turn a person into a spiritual angry drunk. Because that's what's going on. And yet by contrast, Romans 8 verse 6, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Your call. Hostility? Anger? I mean, let me ask you this. I, I, we all get angry, right? And the Bible says, be angry but do not sin. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. It's not sinful to be angry about something, upset by something. But how many of us enjoy anger? Uh, you enjoy anger, Mike? See me in my office afterward. <laughs> Well, you feel it, but doesn't it make you just... I don't like to be angry. I... it, it just... Please. In fact, when I get angry, it makes me angry that I'm angry. <laughs> it's not an emotion that is... Well, I mean, given the choice, would you rather have life and peace or anger and hostility? I mean, really. What do you prefer? Sorry, Mike, I know that maybe, maybe we're just we'll communicate later (laughs) and I'll cut this out of the recording too just for your sake keep it in there alright Mike's a little angry with me right now (laughs) but the anger of her sexual immorality the anger of her fornication is a fascinating phrase the mindset on the spirit is life and peace the contrast couldn't be more clear in the bible fear God worship him glorify him set your mind on spiritual things you'll be at peace sexual immorality sinful things focus yourself on the flesh you're going to find yourself constantly hostile toward god and that kind of hostility just it does not feel good it doesn't feel good physically it doesn't feel good spiritually and it doesn't feel good in the soul want to be free of hostility man set your mind on the spirit But following the flow of these angelic messages, first we have the godly fear of the gospel message, the eternal gospel. And then the second angel comes along with the final forewarning of the fall of Babylon and the horrible hangover of the beastly mark. That's the third one. Then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, another megaphone voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, note this, stop right there, the warning comes, just as people are about to do it. God doesn't go, well, let's just see if they take it, and if they do, we'll condemn them all. He gives warning. Look, don't do this. Don't do this. How many times in my life, I think back over the many years, did I have a sense by the Spirit of God not to do what I was about to do. And sometimes I listened. And sometimes I did The Lord doesn't just let us wander off into sin. He has a way of tapping us on the shoulder, in this case, of shouting with a megaphone, don't take the mark. The beast is going, take the mark, take the mark. you got to line them up, set them up. Here we go. And here comes the angel, the third one. Don't take the mark. <laughs> That's just awesome to me. So here's God pulling out the stop, sending an angel. And he says, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The wine of the wrath of God. And note how it says, mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Boy, you don't want to experience God's anger. The angel is saying, don't drink the wine of the world, don't drink the booze of Babylon. Don't take the mark. Because if you do, you will end up imbibing the wine of God's wrath. Now, Psalm 75, verse 8. And by the way, the Bible 13 different times uses a cup of wine as a picture of the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God. 13 times. But in direct parallel to this verse, talking about the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger, Psalm 75, verse 8, a psalm of Asaph, says the following, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. And He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Now, if you're paying close attention... And I'm sure you all still are. Note what it says in verse 10, that this wine of the wrath of God is mixed in full strength. In the cup of His anger. Mixed in full strength. And Psalm 75 says it is well mixed. No problem, right? No, there is a problem. Because... The tra- at least the NASB translation says it's mixed in full strength. And in reality, the word mixed in the Greek is unmixed. So Asus says it's well mixed. John hears this angel says it's unmixed. How do you reconcile those two? Either the wine is mixed or it's not. And this is potent and it's powerful, so check it out. When Asa says the wine is well mixed, what he's talking about is it is fully spiced. Okay, this is a fully spiced cup of the wrath of God. So it's it's thick, it's potent, it's it's hundred-proof wine, if you will, but it is it's well mixed. It's got more, it's not just plain old wine, but it's wine that's mixed with spices. The third angel, when it says here, mixed. In full strength or unmixed. Well, the unmixed literally, literally, note this it's poured out undiluted. Undiluted. So you have the wine of the wrath of God, Psalm 75, that's well mixed, mixed in with spices. This is heavy wine. And then this same cup is now poured out, but it's poured out undiluted. What does that mean? Well, I, I know that none of you are heavy-duty wine drinkers in here, so let me explain it to you. Have you ever heard of a decanter? What a decanter does for wine bibbers is it, it's it's takes a bottle and as you pour out of a decanter or to decant wine means to pour it out of one bottle into another container but all the dregs and the bitterness that can settle at the bottom of the bottle you don't pour that out or it gets it's kept from pouring so to decant is to only pour the pure wine and to leave all that nasty bitter stuff behind What's happening here is not only is this wine of the wrath of God well mixed, but it is also poured out undiluted. It's undecanted. It's just poured out as is. That is sediment, dregs, and all. And when you put Psalm 75 and what the third angel is saying together here, what it describes is the wine of God's wrath poured out and drunk down full strength with all spice and sediment, potency and dregs. You're not missing a thing. It's all there. Full-on wrath. That's the picture. That is the demand of God against those who would take the beast in full-on rebellion of God Himself. That doesn't sound very loving. Rick, you started out a little while ago and saying that we're going to talk about the love of God. We're going to try and plumb a little further into the depths of the love of God. But that just sounds brutal. Well, stay with me. It gets worse. You're going to be tormented, not you, but the person who takes the mark, drinks of the wine of the wrath of God, will be, note this, tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I heard somewhere that hell just means separation from God. That's that's a favorite of, well, of soft-sell Christian preachers who don't want to upset people. Oh, you know the fire and the darkness and the gnashing of teeth. That's all. That's all another thing. That's not. It's just. It's just separation from God. And you know what? You tell that to someone who has chosen not to be in the presence of God, and they'll say, "Well, that doesn't sound so bad. I didn't want to be in God's presence anyway." So if hell is just separation from God, fine. I'll just be separated from God. No, it, it's so much more. Hell, separation from God. Where does that even come from? Well, it comes from. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-9. through I'll just read this to you. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Oh, well, there it is. So hell is just separation from God, right? The Greek word away from there, it's a preposition, and it literally means separation. That is, no sense of God. That that those who reject Him are outside of any sense of His presence. In Revelation 14.10, where it says quite literally, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb... That he will be in that presence. The, The word in is another preposition. This one speaks of observation. So it's two sides of the same coin. Stay with me. It's separation, but it's also observation, and both are happening simultaneously. One refers to the perspective of the person tormented. That is, for the person who takes the mark, for the person who rejects God, for the person who goes to hell, their experience is one of separation. They do not see God, they do not know God, they're not aware of God, and that alone is hellish. Because every good and perfect gift given comes from the Father. Every breath we take. Every tasty bit of food. Every joyful moment. If there is good in this world, it's because God gave it. And I'm not just saying to Christians, to, to anybody. Believe it or not, everybody receives the blessing of the presence of God, of His creation, of His goodness. That, that's across the board. Can you imagine suddenly being separated from everything that's good? And so for the person who has rejected God, there is the sense of complete separation. But on the other side, God is omnipresent. There's nowhere that God isn't. There's nowhere that God can't be. And what I'm telling you here is, while the person tormented has a view of being completely outside of God's presence, God Himself is completely aware of theirs. Which should tell you something about the love of God. What do you mean? Charles Reary says it will be a spectacle in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, whom these people have rejected. Throughout eternity, the lake of fire is in the presence of the Lord. For nothing can be outside his omnipresence, even the lake of fire. However, the wicked will be separated from God in the sense of contact and fellowship. Now stay with this thought. So God is aware of the lost. The lost are no longer aware of God. They're terrified. They're alone. In fact, when you look at how hell is described in the Scriptures, it's literally a sense of isolation. Horrifying. And yet God is fully Aware Now, hold that thought and and answer this question. What about the saved? What about us? What about those who are in heaven? Because I, I don't know, how can I go through eternity with the thought that dear ones of mine, and I am speaking absolutely honestly, people that I love, people that I know who aren't in heaven, how in the world can I endure that? God says in Isaiah 65, verse 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Revelation twenty-one, four. He says there's going to be no more mourning or crying or pain. And the only way there can be no mourning or crying or pain in eternity for the saved is that we no longer are aware of the lost. God's going to do something here. I don't know what it is. he's going to do something as he creates all things new either we will be so enraptured with all things new or there is something he will do where he will remove the painful memories from you and from me but here's the love of God one person throughout all eternity will never forget every last lost person and that is God Such is the love of God who offered eternal life to everybody. Such is the love of God that He will never forget every person who rejected Him. This is an aspect of His love that is not talked about perhaps much because it's hard to fathom. What you're saying, He loves people in hell? Absolutely. While you and I have no more mourning or sorrow or pain, I believe... I, I believe that there is a place in God's heart that will always ache over all those He created who rejected Him. And He will remember every single one. And the smoke of their torment, verse 11, goes up forever and ever. That phrase forever and ever is used an awful lot in the Scriptures. You know what it means in the Greek? Forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Note the word worship. It's something they have chosen to do. And receives, it's something they have chosen to do. And both worship and receive are in the present tense, which gives it an ongoing sense. So these... These are those who have worshipped the beast and received the mark, and they are in the process of worshipping and receiving for a long time, perhaps even on into some aspect of eternity. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever that phrase is used primarily to describe the eternality of God and of Christ Jesus, describing their glory and their dominion. Verses like 1 Timothy 1:17, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or look back at Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Which says the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. That phrase forever and ever is not a euphemism for a certain span of time. It indicates, and there's no way around this, it indicates eternity. This is eternal. I think I've shared with you before, I've had conversations with people Who want to deny hell, or at least deny that hell is everlasting, because they just can't imagine everlasting punishment. How can you punish someone forever? Well, that's actually easy to answer. When you sin against an eternal God, the punishment is eternal. But what I'm saying to you is we can't get around this phrase forever and ever. The only way to see the phrase is eternal. There is nothing short of that in the Scriptures. And note this about those, and again, we're talking about specifically those here who have taken the mark of the beast. They've received it. They worship the beast and his image. And it says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Listen, they have no rest day and night. They have no rest. They have no rest. Engraved on countless headstones is that three-word phrase, rest in peace. Now, if someone dies in Christ, there's truth there. There's rest. And there's peace. You find rest. You find peace in Jesus. But outside of Christ, there is no rest. There's no eternal rest. There's no soul sleep. There is no rest for the weary who follows the beast. But I would add to that, there's no peace in sin right now. There's no rest, and there's no peace. There's no rest day and night. That's the condition of sin and rebellion. No rest. No peace. It's always with you, and especially, especially for believers in Jesus Christ. There's no rest or peace when we're in rebellion. When we're walking away from Jesus. When we're rejecting Him. When we're trying to ignore those aspects of the truth of the Word of God that we just don't like. There's no rest. There's no peace in that. There is rest and there is peace for us as we follow Him. As we engage with Him. As we accept His complete and total Word. Isaiah said in Isaiah 57 verse 20, "...the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace," says my God, "...for the wicked." On the other hand, Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2 says, "...the righteous man perishes." No one takes it to heart. Devout men are taken away. No one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace." They rest on their beds who walked in His upright way. And that's not soul sleep either. It's rest and it's peace. Because when a person dies today, while the body may go into the ground or be cremated, the soul, the spirit, goes home to be with the Lord. Rest. Peace. Matthew 11.28, Jesus said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, John now turns his attention to the saints of the church age, which includes us and the saints of the tribulation, saints in his own time, John turns after hearing now these three angels rise up, one with the gospel, one with the warning against the fall of Babylon, and one with the great and severe warning of eternal punishment for taking the mark of the beast and worshiping him. And John turns and he says, verse 12, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may what rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Well, we saw this in the last chapter. He said, here is the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance and the faith of the saints. And at that time, he was talking about don't fight back. If they come after you, let them come after you. If they if they martyr you, let them martyr you. Don't fight. Just trust, just believe, you'll persevere. And now, he says again, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep or who preserve the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. The word perseverance is such an important word in the Bible. We've heard it many times. Sometimes it's translated steadfastness. Sometimes it's translated patience, constancy. Or, I like this, patient continuance. Perseverance is the Greek word hupomone. And it means patient continuance. The perseverance of the saints. John says, look, here's the perseverance of the saints. Be patient. Preserve the Word of God. Adhere to it. Listen to it. Keep it. And trust, have faith in Jesus. Preserve the commands. Press on by pressing in to faith and be patient. I need that more today than I did 13 years ago. It was 13 years ago that we studied through Revelation and at the time I wasn't sure we'd finish. In fact, I was pretty convinced we wouldn't. Here we are 13 years later. The perseverance is getting very thin. Patience. Patience. Just wait for it. But he hasn't come yet. I know. Just wait for it. Persevere. Patient continuance. Well, how do I do that? You know, when I want Jesus to come so desperately, I just want it to be over. I get so sick and tired of the wickedness and the evil and the hurt and the heartache in the world. I just, I would love it all to end. And John says, hey, hey, here's the patience. Keep this Word. Trust in Jesus. That's how you'll you'll maintain patience. Part of the reason why people get impatient is, well, they're not keeping the Word. When I say keep the Word, again, let me remind you, the idea of keeping is not just that you're doing it perfectly. None of us are capable of that, truly. We're going to miss stuff. We are going to fall. But to keep the Word, man, it means to keep my attention here. It means to preserve it in my life, and it means to be in the word as often as I can. Keep the word. You having a patience problem? Get back into the word. Preserve it in your life. And press in to Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus. And then again, verse 13, this voice comes from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, which runs completely counter to anything the world believes. Death is the worst possible thing. But if you die in the Lord, blessed. Blessed. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing the Spirit even joins in and says, yeah, so they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. What does that mean? You die in the Lord, your deeds follow with you? Well, it simply means that your faithfulness is duly noted. And their rewards are certain. It's like their deeds follow with them. You ever have one of those days where you've just worked hard all day long and, and you've, you've put yourself into everything you're doing, and, and maybe it was a lot of physical labor, backbreaking labor. Maybe you're doing work around the house. Maybe it's springtime, so it's spring cleaning, and it's trying to get the outdoor cleaned up and, and everything ready for the summer. And you just spend the whole day, and you come in at the end of the day, and you're greasy, and you're oily, and you're dirty, and you're worn out, but man, you did everything on your list. You hit the shower, then you hit the bed. And as you lie there, isn't that a great feeling? sore aching but finished all your deeds follow with you all your deeds are with you you're done accomplished Jesus said I'm going I'm to take care of this I'm going to complete you I will finish you all the work you have to do you, you, you keep my word and you trust in me And when you get here, all your deeds follow with you. I think we're going to remember stuff we did that we've forgotten here. I think it's going to be very similar to that long day of hard work. We stretch out our feet, first day in heaven, and we just go, Oh, this feels good. Life well lived. Job well done. All their deeds follow with them. And it's not one of those GND days. Have I told you guys about that? Jeff D'Angelo's phrase for when he's here at the church and he's not getting anything done. It's a GND, got nothing done. I'm sure I've told you about that. It just cracks me up because he says it all the time. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? GND. (laughs) No, you got nothing done that you had planned. But God got all kinds of stuff done. It's not like a got-nothing-done day. It's a day where the end of the day there's sweet rest. And this is rest in the Lord. Sweet Sabbath rest. This is the day, by the way, for those who die in the Lord, this is the day when six, the number of man, becomes seven. When mankind, created on the sixth day, arrives at Shabbat, the seventh day. The day of rest. Mr. 666 and those who wear his mark will never get there, will never arrive at the seventh day. They will never know Sabbath rest. But you know what Jesus said? Mark chapter 2, verse 27 The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of Shabbat. That's Jesus. Feeling a little strung out? Feeling a little weary? Feeling a little overworked, Jesus is the Lord of Shabbat. Sweet Sabbath rest, refreshment, restoration, redemption. It's all in the Lord Jesus. So, so persevere, saints. Persevere. With continual patience and patient continuance. Just hang on to his word, hang in there, keep on going. He's coming. Have I mentioned that tonight? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He'll be here soon. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud, one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now we have talked about angels. We've seen angels. Angels. There are many angels here in the book of Revelation. In fact, I don't know if you've been counting, but so far, not including the myriads of angels around the throne or those angels we see fighting with Michael, fighting against the devil and his angels, or even the fallen or incarcerated angels, not including all those generic numbers that we can't know how many they are. Specifically, the angels that are numbered in the Revelation to this point including the four cherubim, we've seen 36 angels so far. 36 already. By the time we finish the book of Revelation, we will have seen 62 individual angels mentioned in this letter alone. But this isn't the revelation of angels, is it? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is no angel, verse 14, mark this. This is Jesus this is Jesus some want to say this is an angel because they like the idea that if we say this is an angel then between verses 6 and 20 of chapter 14 we get seven more angels instead of six angels and a son of man but this is not an angel this is Jesus the Christ and note he's not even called an angel here behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud one like a son of man there's no definite article Meaning what? There's no the. doesn't say one like the Son of Man. In fact, interesting, if it had said one like the Son of Man, then it couldn't be Jesus. Because it would be one who's like the Son of Man. But this says one who's like a Son of Man, which indicates this is Jesus. Because Jesus is like a Son of Man. Jesus came as a human being. He came into the world. God among us. Emmanuel. The Word made flesh. So He's one like a Son of Man. This is Jesus, looking like a man, but arriving on a cloud. And John, by the way, how he writes this, here comes one like a Son of Man on a cloud. What he's doing is identifying this vision very clearly with that of the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn back there, just listen. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's having his vision of one, again, like a son of man. And in Daniel 7 verse 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed this is jesus This is the Son of Man that Daniel saw in the vision. Now John sees Him. I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud, one like a Son of Man, having a golden crown on His head. Now that is a Stephanos, that's the leafy crown, but it's gold. Antichrist in chapter 6 comes riding in on the white horse wearing a Stephanos, but it's not gold. It's just leafy. So it's going to fade and die off pretty quickly. This is a gold Stephanos. Why is it the Stephanos? Because it's a victor's crown. Crown of victory. So here comes this one like a son of man on a cloud wearing a crown of victory. And he's holding in his hand a sharp sickle. Which is of course a picture, an instrument of harvesting. Luke chapter 10, verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Don't miss this. Jesus is not only the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, He's the Lord of the harvest, which is the work of the church. Lord of the harvest. And so here He comes holding the tool of the harvester, a sickle, in his hand. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, this is the heavenly temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle in and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth, he says, is ripe. So this angel comes out of the heavenly temple. He's a messenger, a messenger angel, simply to let this Son of Man know Your father says it's harvest time. Time to reap. And note how he says it. He says the harvest of the earth is ripe. The word ripe here, it literally means dry and withered. That is, something is is to the point of completely dry. And it's a word that is used to describe beyond ripened grain. So this is a grain harvest. Let's talk about that. Two harvests are talked about here, and this is the first, the grain harvest. But it's a grain harvest that it's almost too late. I mean, it's, we're talking end of the end of the age. There's a grain harvest, time to be reaped. Matthew 13 talks about this grain harvest. Let me read it to you, Matthew, Matthew 13, Verse 24. That Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have tares? And he said, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. No. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, bind them in bundles, and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Tares separated out for judgment, wheat gathered into my barn... At the very end of the age, the wheat cannot be the church. The wheat cannot be the church. Do you understand? Because here at the very end of the age, we're talking about the very last remnant of wheat. We're talking about, I believe, surviving faithful Israel at the end of the tribulation, along with anybody who at that time has come to faith in Jesus and has somehow wonderfully survived, persevered the tribulation... And they are all gathered into the kingdom. His barn. I like the idea of comparing the kingdom to a barn, because that's how we started out. (laughs) Back to the barn. Gathered in. Well, back in Revelation 14, verse 16. Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel, verse 17, came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, verse 18, the one who has power over fire, what does that mean? I have no idea. Just that he has power over fire, but he came out from the altar, so perhaps this is the same angel who is at the altar, the altar of incense, who stirred it up, remember? Collected the prayers of the saints in the censer and took the fire of the altar and the prayers of the saints and presented them. The incense went up before God and then fire from the altar was thrown down to the earth. Revelation chapter 8. Perhaps the same angel. Which is why John now says he has the power over fire. So maybe I do know what that means. He came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying... Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Ripe. Okay, wait a minute. Now it's not wheat harvest anymore. Now it is grape harvest. But the grapes are not just ripe. They are overripe. They are literally bursting with juice they can't get any more ripe than this. The, the Greek word for this ripeness is ripe to bursting and it's used for grapes, but these are not grapes for sweet enjoyment and tasty wine. These are the grapes of wrath. You can say they're not the grapes of Welch's. <laughs> they're the, sorry, Dean. They're the grapes of wrath. Verse 19. So... The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came up from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The love of God. Where is the love of God? in this wrath, in this judgment. Instead of grape juice flowing out of this wine press, it is blood. And what we have here at the end of chapter 14 is a pre-description of the result of the War of Armageddon. Armageddon will be talked about further in Revelation and actually takes place later in chapter 19. But it's discussed ahead of time because once we get to chapter 19, it's really not Armageddon we want to see at all. It's Jesus. So we're getting a preview here as we've been getting many little previews here in the middle of the Revelation. But this is Armageddon. This whole idea of the blood rising up to the horse's bridle. This is the war to end all wars. No war has ever been fought on such a plain, on such an expanse of land here. Note this, the vision is explicit that the wine press is trodden outside the city. Outside the city, what city would that be? Any guesses? It's Jerusalem. So it's trodden outside the city of Jerusalem. All of this, this bloodbath is happening there. That gives us a location. It gives us an understanding of where we're talking about. Then it says it's for a distance of, some of your Bibles say 200 miles. Others will say in the Greek 1600 stadia. It's about that same length. 200 miles is is a good comparison to the amount of space, the distance of this vast valley, of this incredible war that's taking place, spanning this entire area, all happening at once. And across, get this, across 200 miles, blood to the horse's bridle. Four feet. Four feet? How's that possible? And this is one of those things critics of Revelation will read that and say, well, that's just ridiculous. He's clearly talking in metaphors. No, he's talking, I think, actually rather specifically. I think we're talking about a four-foot-deep river of blood. I think we're talking about so much blood, however, through this 200-mile region that you cannot ride through it on horseback without spattering blood up onto the bridle. It is a bloodbath. You would think inconceivable, but if all the nations and all the armies of all the nations of the world are converging, north, south, east, and west, converging in this place, in this valley, outside Jerusalem, for this massive battle, this massive war, it is not inconceivable that that much blood would be across the ground and spattering all over the bridles of the horses riding through. Now, wait a minute. You might say, hang on. Horses? Where are the tanks? If it's such a great end times battle, you know? Where are the drones and the military vehicles and the Humvees? Where are they? Where are the ships out in the Mediterranean firing their missiles in? Where's all of this? You know what's interesting? And I didn't know this 13 years ago. Billions and billions of dollars are spent right now, not just in America, although we're spending billions on this, but around the world on the computerization of warfare. You remember back there was a, a, the debate between, I remember this, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. And in the debate they were talking about warfare and weapons and military. And Mitt Romney came out and said, I think Russia is one of our biggest foes and we need to be building up our military against the possible threat of Russia and he was laughed off the stage and then Barack Obama said no, no, you don't know we need to modernize we need to modernize our warfare we need drones we need computerization and that all sounds so good until an electromagnetic pulse blasts out any of our power grids and suddenly there's no electricity now what are we going to do? How are you going to fight in a fully computerized tank when all electricity is knocked out? It's dead. It's not going anywhere. Ships are not sailing. Planes are not flying. The most recent airline disaster you all are aware of, when the plane went down, it was computer error. Because the plane was under computer control. Man, give me two or three pilots. I'll take human error. Because if you got two or three pilots and one goes bad, you still got a couple of others that can figure it out computerization and when all this computerization goes out is knocked out which again an electromagnetic pulse would do it, it's the result of a nuclear blast or even a nuclear blast in the heavens Way above the earth can cause this kind of a pulse. It could be a sun flare. There's so much happening in the tribulation that easily could be knocking out power grids right and left, and you've got functionless military hardware. But you know what you still have? Horses. You got horses. You can ride. And by the way, Voldemort Putin, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> He's got an entire wing of military that is trained cavalry in Russia. Did you know that? Why? Because the terrain is so rough. Because even now, if you have tanks, they can't get over some of the terrain that horses can get through. So he's got an entire cavalry to fight on horseback for deployment in the terrain of Russia and the Middle East. So horseback fighting is not out of the question by any stretch. But you might say, okay, fine, I'll give you horses, but 200 miles, that's just for effect, right? There's never been in the history of warfare a a single battle that has stretched for 200 miles. There have been skirmishes and battles that have stretched over that distance, but not one massive war in one place. It's going to happen. Joel chapter 3. I'm going to read you three passages from the Hebrew Scriptures and I'm going to do this quickly so just listen so you can get a flavor of this. It's either that or save it for Sunday but I'm just starting to wake up so stay with me here. Joel chapter 3 verse 9 Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war Rouse the mighty men Let all the soldiers draw near Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears Let the weak man say I am a mighty man hasten and come all you surrounding nations gather yourselves there bring down O Lord your mighty ones let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Yehoshaphat the valley of Yehoshaphat which means judgment of Yahweh Yahweh judges For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. Oh, we just read that, didn't we? Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, or literally the valley of verdict. The decision is not man's, the decision is God's. This is the valley of God's verdict for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of verdict multitudes the sun and the moon grow dark the stars lose their brightness the Lord roars from Zion utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel then you will know that I am the Lord your God he says to Israel dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Stronghold, he says. Stronghold. The Lord is a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Does that bring anything to mind in our recent studies in Revelation? A stronghold. Perhaps Petra? Petra? The place in the wilderness prepared to protect Israel. The Lord is a stronghold. Okay, keep that in mind and turn to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. And while you turn, just listen, I will mention to you that what's taking place here at Armageddon is a three-front war. Daniel describes it anyway in Daniel 11 we won't go there tonight but in Daniel 11 he describes a three-front war where all of these armies of the nations of the world are engaging guess what against Antichrist not with Antichrist he has his armies but from the north the south the east they're coming at him they finally figured out this is a bad guy So all the world is at war. This is the Great World War. They're in the Valley of Decision, which is, by the way, a valley with another name. The Jezreel Valley. In Israel. It's called in Hebrew, Emek Yisrael, which means God will sow because it's a fruitful, beautiful valley. Right now, it's got all kinds of fruit and vegetables that grow there. Massive amounts of produce that's exported from Israel. But it's also called by another name and that is Har Megiddo, Which means Mount of Resi- uh, Rendezvous. Mount of Rendezvous. Mount Megiddo. Mount Rendezvous. Because the great rendezvous is going to happen in this valley Armageddon. But in the midst of all this raging that's happening on the planet among all these nations suddenly... Jesus shows up they see him coming and they turn all their wrath and rage and anger that is directed at each other and an antichrist they see Jesus coming and they turn all their weapons at him Daniel describes that and you can read that in Daniel 11 but when Jesus shows up you know we can track his exact treads as he returns to the earth The Bible tells us how He's going to return and where. Watch this. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. His wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains, note that, the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts, that's the stars and the sun and the moon, will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Verse 5, My sword is satiated in heaven, Behold, it shall descend from judgment upon Edom. Edom? Watch this. And upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land, note this again, of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them, and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Skip over to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Where is this all taking place? Jesus coming back, first stage, Basra in Edom. Does that, I, does that get anyone's attention? That there's something about. We, we, I know we've talked about Basra and Edom, Edom recently. Listen, Isaiah sixty-three, verse one. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is. Majestic in His apparel. Marching in the greatness of His strength. It is I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Well, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments. I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come I looked and there was no one to help I was astonished and there was no one to uphold so my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their life blood on the earth whose garments are stained (laughs) this is Jesus Garments stained red. Revelation 19, verse 13, tells us he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, but the blood is not his. It's the blood of rebellious mankind. It's horrifying. He comes stained with blood. The blood will be spattered as of a person who has come out of the wine trough stomping grapes. And you get the picture? Splattered all all over the garments of Christ. And when He comes back in His glory, He comes in three stages that we see in the Scriptures. Step one is Basra in Edom. That's the first place He sets foot. Why? Why why does he come to Eden? I thought he came to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Don't get ahead of me. He comes to Basra in Eden Edom. Why? Because it's where his people are. Remember where Petra is, the place in the wilderness, the place prepared, Selah, the rock, the stronghold? It's in the mountains of Edom. The mountains, which by the way, are stained with blood. He comes first to Edom because the remnant of Israel is there. I was thinking about this today and remembered Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Jesus came first to the people of Israel. Offered first salvation. The message of salvation to Israel. In Matthew chapter 10. The first time He sends out anybody. The first commission is a commission to go only to the lost of the house of Israel. It's not until Matthew 28, after Israel's rejected Him, that then He gives the Great Commission to go to the Gentiles. It's always the Jews first. And so even in His second coming, He comes back to Basra and Edom. Why? Because that's where the Jewish people are. He comes to them first. He rescues them, as it were, from the onslaught all around the stronghold that's going on. Don't think that Antichrist has given up trying to take out the Jewish people. He's gone to make war elsewhere, but He's still got people fighting against Israel. He still wants to take out those who are in that safe place in the wilderness. God has protected them. Now Jesus comes to this place in His return to the Jew first. Paul said in Romans 15.18, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God in His mercy. The Jew first and also to the Gentile and God has not forgotten His people. So he comes to Basra first, step one. Step two, Megiddo. Megiddo. How far is it from Basra and Eden all the way up to... Past outside the city of Jerusalem, running up the Jezreel Valley, up what's called the Jordan Rift Valley, and into the Jezreel Valley. How far is that? What is that distance? 200 miles. 200 miles. Blood flowing all the way. Massive life lost all the way from Basra to Megiddo. The fighting will go and the blood will flow. In that entire region, Jesus comes into Edom, Basra, for His people. Then He begins His march, right up to Megiddo itself. And the point of all this, look, 200 miles, if you look at it, that's Israel. I mean, that's the heart of Israel, running from north of Jerusalem, up in the Jezreel Valley, all the way down past Jerusalem, all the way down to southern Jordan, and that whole region is now a land, get this, a land, listen, soaked with blood. A land soaked with blood. At the convergence of history's greatest war, Jesus comes back and there's blood everywhere. But He comes to judge. Isaiah 11, verse 4, with righteousness He will judge the poor. He'll decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall slay the wicked. Revelation 19, 15, from His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may strike down the nations, He will rule them with a rod of iron, and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. He comes to Basra in Eden. He makes His way then up to Megiddo, step two, and then finally step three. The Mount of Olives. The Bible tells us in Zechariah 14, verse 4, He will set foot, literally set foot, on the Mount of Olives, and when He does, the Mount of Olives will be split north to south by a wide valley. And from there, Jesus Christ... The returning king and all the glory of God is going to make his way across the Kidron Valley through the eastern gate and right up onto the Temple Mount. The king is back. How does this speak of the love of God? This brutal bloodbath. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us according to the law Almost all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God, who created blood as our life, for without the blood, there is no life, who gave us our life blood, God did it at the very beginning because all the way through, He's going to weave this picture that we might understand how precious, how precious blood is. And how much more precious we are to Him. Precious to Him, but all this blood lost by all these people. People in rebellion, people who reject Him, people who refuse to accept not just His lordship, but His offer of grace and eternal salvation. You know what that offer is? Trust me. Believe in me. You're saved. Have you ever had an offer that is more free or more freeing than the offer of God's grace? And he says, since the very beginning of time, hey, I love you, I've created you, but I didn't just create you for this life, I've created you for all eternity to be with me, to be in my presence, and, and I in yours, to know fellowship together. And the world says, eh, no Thanks. We'll do our own thing. I'd rather live for 50, 60, 70 years here on this planet. Do things my way. than acquiesce to your grace. J. Vernon McGee, and I, I read this back when we studied Revelation before. I thought it was such a good quote. I'm going to repeat it. The generation of today needs to hear this. Instead, they are offered endless little methods of living the Christian life. There is nothing that will straighten out your life like knowing that our God is a holy God, that the Lord Jesus Christ is righteous, and that He is not going to tolerate sin in your life. Why? Because He loves you too much. He loves you too much to sit there and watch you mess up your life by choosing sin over the Savior. It's why these messages have to come out from time to time as we study the Bible. God absolutely, desperately loves you. You know, I didn't think... I I thought I understood the love of God, then I became a parent. And I had little ones in the house running around. I'm like, I never knew I could love a, a, a nutty little being like I love these nutty little beings. And then they grew up. And my love increased. And then they started moving out of the house. And my love increased all the more. And I will tell you this much. Raising grown kids is much more difficult than little ones in the house. I would go back to little ones in the house any day. Because they do what I tell them. And when they do, don't, do whack. And then they do what I tell them. <laughs> this doesn't work with my older kids. I don't know why. <laughs> I desperately love my children. It breaks my heart when any of them, and I've got good kids, so don't get me wrong here. I'm not uncovering sin in the lives of my grown kids. But it breaks my heart when they make choices that are ungodly. I wonder how God feels when I do that. Why would that break his heart? Because he loves me so much. Because He is desperately in love with every one of us, believer and non-believer alike, by the way. Oh, He loves His children, those who have been born again. But He longs for those who have not. Because He is a God of love. And I want you to notice one last phrase, and then I will truly stop for tonight. And you've been very patient. Where does all of this bloodbath take place? Where does it happen? Revelation 14, verse 20, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. You should circle that in your Bible. Outside the city. Why is that important? The two bloodiest events in all history happened right outside Jerusalem. The last one is Armageddon. The first one was the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to know the love of God? Two thousand years before everything that we've just read happens, perhaps longer, Jesus gave every last drop of His own blood so that no one should have to live into the valley of Megiddo and give up their blood. One way or the other, the land will be cleansed with blood. One way or the other, you will be cleansed with blood either the blood of Christ or yours. The tragedy is that if you want to be cleansed by your blood, your blood is not clean. It's not going to work. But Jesus gave His own blood. Final verse, Hebrews 13, verse 11, "...the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp." therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach for here we do not have a lasting city but we are seeking the city which is to come Jesus gave every last drop of his blood outside the city where Megiddo happens angels and reapers Jesus Christ, like a son of man, comes reaping. But don't fear, don't fear the reaper. Remember that old song from 1976, Blue Oyster Cult: "Don't fear the reaper," the great cowbell song. Don't fear the reaper. Our world has all kinds of bizarre imaginations and fantasies about what the reaper is—the grim reaper, you know, the hooded guy with the sickle. That's not. The, Jesus is the reaper. Don't fear the reaper. In fact, the first angel had it right. Fear God now. Give Him glory today. Worship Him and you will live forever. Father, there's so much to this. And again, when we try to plumb the depths of Your love... (laughs) It's difficult to go that deep because there is blood there. The blood of Christ. And Father, it's my hope and prayer that we will comprehend that You died first. That You gave Your blood first. And that following that almost incomprehensible eternal offering of your blood Lord Jesus following that you turned around and continued every last warning against what's coming so that people would choose and accept your love and your forgiveness and your grace to live for eternity rather than reject you and find themselves in the place of Megiddo Father, would You just forgive us our immoralities and forgive us our sin and forgive us our foolishness. Father, bring each and every one of us to the place in our lives where we need to repent and turn to You. May we not be among those who trample Your grace, but we receive it fresh and new tonight. And by Your Spirit, as we talked about Sunday morning, give us the power of redeemed, washed, born-again people sealed by the Spirit of God to choose to please You, to set our minds on the Spirit, to be about godly things, and have an eye to Jesus in all eternity. Father, we pray with broken hearts for people who don't know You. But we ask that rather than going home and wallowing, You would give us that much more boldness to speak the truth of the Gospel to our lost brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers friends and children. Make us tenacious in these last days. For the time is fast approaching when... The last one to give the eternal gospel will come. And following that angel, no hope. Oh Lord, use us now in this age of grace. Fill us with the love of God to love the lost. And draw us near to You, Lord Jesus. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank uh. you.